from St. Louis Public Radio. This is St. Louis on the Air. The, the more uh, radical you believe yourself to be, the more minute the silo in which you isolate yourself and put a lock on it and put a bow on it and perform your radical performance, uh, which precludes all kinds of solidarity and nothing could be better for the people that you are up against, who, by the way, betray incredible solidarity. You're there as an essayist, almost as a journalist. Keeping quiet is, is a kind of politics. I'm Sarah Fenske. When Arundhati Roy published her first novel in 1997, it would be almost an understatement to call it a sensation. The God of Small Things quickly became the biggest selling book by an Indian author who actually lived in India, in contrast to expats like Salman Rushdie. It sold more than six million copies. It won the prestigious Man Booker Prize. And it even saw its author brought up on obscenity charges for its frank acknowledgement of sexual realities. But after the novel, Arundhati Roy became increasingly focused on the real-life political issues and injustices that drove the plot of her fictional debut. She has since written just one other novel, instead focusing on laser-sharp essays, books of nonfiction, and activism. Tonight, Arundhati Roy will receive the 2022 St. Louis Literary Award at the Sheldon Concert Hall. It's given by St. Louis University, and with its receipt, she'll join such luminaries as Joan Didion, Margaret Atwood, Stephen Sondheim, and, yes, Salmon Rushdie. And she joins us today. Arundhati Roy, welcome. Oh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So congratulations on this literary award. How does it feel to be in this company? Well, it feels uh, great because uh, the company is good and it's lovely to be here in a city which isn't, you know, just one of the big cities of the Western world. And to know that a person who writes and lives very locally somehow has uh, resonance outside. Um, and I think that's that's the most beautiful thing about literature, you know, that... You don't have to be trying hard to 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 kind of confect some sort of international product, but the deeper you delve, somehow you arrive at the human substance which crosses borders and continents. And yeah, I mean, your first novel there, the one that uh, that I just mentioned. I mean, this is set in the state that you grew up in. Tells the story of a family living there. I think pretty much everything happens there, and yet this novel resonates so deeply with people in St. Louis, as you say. That's the power of literature. Yeah, I I remember years ago being in you know Estonia, and uh, I think it was my translator who said, but this was my story, <laughs> you know. And recently I was in Poland uh, with my second novel, The Ministry of Utmost Happiness, and he said, you do know that this is about Poland, <laughs> you know. And yet it's so very, very local. 
Yeah, mm-hmm. that's such a great compliment mm-hmm. to your work. And you, you said that it's great to be here in St. Louis. I, I have to mention, um, you have been here now longer than many of our award recipients here. You came here a few days early on purpose. What made you want to come here on Sunday already? <laughs> you know, I, uh, The God of Small Things, the book, this uh, novel that you mentioned, it's uh, all set in this little village in South India and Kerala where I grew up on the banks of a little river called the Meenachal. And it's a a story about caste, about, uh, you know, the the, the communist revolution that was just around the corner when I was growing up. Uh, and, And, you know, honestly, I used to sit on the banks of that river and I used to dream about the Mississippi. Really? I used to think about it so much, you know, about the slave ships and about the 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 huge stories that 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 grew up. I used to listen to Paul Robeson and Old Man and, River. Yes. And even today, you know, my mother's eighty eight years old and she sometimes, you know, her her oxygen levels dip because she's she's very severely asthmatic and then you know your you become a little hallucinatory, you forget things. And if I play Old Man River to her, she sings it back to me. So I just uh, have something. Uh, I just, it, I felt like it's it's the sister of the river that I grew up on. And uh, yeah, I, I went to Ferguson because obviously I've been following uh, what happened. And I know, you know, from my own experience in India, how huge things that somehow take off and sometimes people forget that it's the local people and their courage that sets it off yeah so although obviously you know just going there doesn't uh, you know doesn't show me what happened but somehow I'm that writer who needs to touch and smell and feel a place yeah so I I had all this in mind uh, and that's why I came early that's so great. And so you were able to do some exploring. You went to Ferguson. Did you feel kind of that, that spirit in the air when you're, you're there among the strip malls and the streets of Ferguson? Yes, and it's, it's interesting, you know, that one, I'm, I'm always very wary of sort of saying, oh, the whole world is the same and everything is just another iteration of the other thing. Because if you come from India, like I do, I've, I've only ever lived there. And, you know, the, the I heard your previous guests talking about homelessness and about how the city is trying to sort of, you know, gentrify itself and and this this aversion that even the people who live here have about facing the problems of inequality. I live in a city of 20 million people. You know, there's... There's, I think there are more, probably more homeless people than people who have homes. Almost, it's it's everything is crammed together, illegal. Everything is hanging out. The violence hangs out. The poverty. Mm-hmm. When you come to a place like Ferguson, as an Indian, you need to know what happened here because you can't actually read it through my lens. You know, because because. Yeah. It's, you know, what chills me more is driving through poor neighborhoods here, seeing the beautiful countryside, but you're, you you don't see children, you don't see people playing. You know that there's danger here, which is why they're not out. Mm-hmm. Whereas there, 
there's extreme poverty, there's danger, but everybody's out, you know, because it's not as if everyone has guns and there's yeah. the kind of crime that is thrust upon people. And I was reading about how the poorest people are still a source of income for the police, for the elite, you know. That has been such an issue for, yeah. for towns here, yes. Exactly. So, you know, whatever little they have is also being sucked out of them. It's just beyond inhuman, you know. Yeah. Here, how how black people are criminalized, disenfranchised, and, and have their property taken away from them. In India, two Muslims, Dalits, are criminalized. But you can actually still fight an election from inside prison. You can do that in India? Yes, you can, you can be a candidate. You can even get elected while you're in jail. See, in the U.S., we don't even let you vote uh, when you're I'm in saying, jail. Yeah, you know, but you're, you're disenfranchising people who've fought so hard to, to win the vote, and now you have a, a system of pushing them out again. Yeah. And you've written so movingly, uh, your book, Capitalism, A Ghost Story, which I read uh, before, you know, in preparation for this conversation today, you write a lot about the Muslims in India. You see real similarities between the way they're treated in your country and the way black people are treated here in the U.S. Uh no, it's it's not similar. I mean, this, if there is similarities, it's between the way black people are treated here and Dalit people who are formerly known as untouchables in the Indian caste system. Mm -hmm. What is happening right now, even in the last 10 days since I left India, is, is, is on a different, uh, it's a different thing because the Indian Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, belongs to a, a fascist organization called the RSS, which was set up in 1925. And it has campaigned always for India to be a Hindu nation, whereas mm -hmm. India has, you know, 200 million Muslims, Sikhs, Christians. Uh, it, it, it cannot be a Hindu nation where only Hindus are citizens and everyone else is second class. But today... That organization is uh, the most powerful organization in the country. Mm -hmm. And as we speak, you're seeing uh, in just a few days ago, there was a Hindu festival called Ram Navmi. And the, the mobs that belong to these fascist organizations, which now has a membership of 15 million, as uh, um, in tens of thousands of people with swords calling for genocide, calling for the mass rape of Muslim women, uh, bulldozing what they call illegal settlements, whereas, you know, in a, in a place like India, like Brazil or Mexico City, everything is illegal, but mm -hmm. the Muslim settlements are being bulldozed. Wherever, the, wherever there have been protests against a new anti-Muslim citizenship law, which basically is like not a refugee management policy, but a refugee manufacturing policy, because you had a, a couple of years ago, two million people struck off the list of citizens in one state alone. And now they say our target is five million, and they call them illegal people from Bangladesh, Rohingyas, but actually they are just targeting gen, you know, Muslims, Indian Muslims. And like in the 30s, when the Nuremberg laws required that German citizens produce legacy papers approved by the Third Reich, mm -hmm. 
to then be granted citizenship. Here they are saying you've got to produce legacy papers, which most people don't have. Yeah. So uh, the situation is very different. You have, ma- I mean, when Modi was the chief minister of the state called Gujarat, which is where he made his political debut, 2,500 or 2,000 Muslims were slaughtered on the streets. That was the Gujarat pogrom, followed by massacre after massacre, including in Delhi when Trump was visiting in 2020, where 55 people were killed in the city in what they call riots, but was actually a planned attack on Muslim neighborhoods where Hindu right-wing armed goons, assisted by the police, were at work. And you have devoted your time to covering these issues. You're there as an essayist, almost as a journalist in some cases. Would you say that that's fair to say? I mean, you're doing reporting. You're, you're fact-finding. Yeah. I think it's, uh, you know, it's, it's actually a, a combination of, uh, you know, journalism, literature, history, political commentary, uh, it's a thing of its own. Yeah, you've <laughs> you know? created your own new <laughs> genre. A, it's a thing. and um, But yes, uh, uh, the difficulty is that when things pick up pace as they are now, then as a writer, you know, I keep saying that in order to create the moral space in which you can write fiction, you have to, you have to stand up to this other stuff because otherwise it's a kind of pusillanimity because keeping quiet is is a kind of politics uh, it's a kind you know i'm the kind of person then that could be claimed as you know the source of indian pride international awards and so on and i could be used to further this project which i so despise we're talking today to Arundhati Roy. Tonight, she receives the St. Louis Literary Award from St. Louis University. Uh, she's giving a craft talk tomorrow afternoon from 1 to 3 p.m. That's at Chaffetz School of Business on St. Louis University's campus. Both of those events are open to the public. You do have to register first. We have links for those on our website, stlonair.show. Arundhati, you feel compelled to speak out on these things, compelled to do this sort of writing. And yet fiction also has so much power. You know, reading The God of Small Things, you know, you're writing about how the untouchables were treated. You're writing about police brutality. Is it almost hard to find enough time to do both? (laughs) Because they're both so important. Well, they are. And I don't... uh you know, see them in competition with one another. Not even for your time? (laughs) No, because the essays are really written with some sort of urgency. And they also form uh, the layers of understanding that then become a novel, you know. So the Ministry of Utmost Happiness is about the rise of fascism. It is about what is happening in the state of Kashmir, um, it is about the music and the and the beauty of that country too, you mm-hmm. know. So uh, I couldn't do one without the other. In fact, they are not at all at odds with each other because uh, you know to write fiction, I need to I need to live through things and understand things and and understand also the imagination of 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 the 
the those of us who are resisting you know if mm-hmm. i was just not involved i would just be you know a lot of people ask me how how do you not get consumed by 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 the rage of what is happening but when you're inside these movements you see the humor you see the you know graveyard humor you see you see uh, how people are you know whether we win whether we lose whether we buy time whether we are destroyed we're not going to be on your side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that humor, I'm glad you mentioned that because I kept noticing this in your work where you're kind of amused by the way that people will form small factions and argue with each other over little things, even as there are big, important things you're talking about. Is that something that, you know, being able to sort of step back and, and take a look at the, the foolishness of humanity that, that keeps you from despair? Yes, uh, that's that's a big part of it. And of course, nowadays, what is happening in India, everywhere in the world is the the more uh, radical you believe yourself to be, the more minute the silo in which you isolate yourself and put a lock on it and put a bow on it and perform your radical performance. Uh, which precludes all kinds of solidarity and nothing could be better for the people that you are up against, who, by the way, betray incredible solidarity. I mean, they are able to be in solidarity, corporations and Bill Gates and, uh, you know, Elon Musk are, uh, uh, you know, prepared to be in solidarity with every kind of thing and political, as long as it gets them profit. And these are people... Uh, who are now literally controlling the world and controlling its money, controlling its wealth, controlling the information, controlling policy making. And here we are all distributed into our little politically correct silos, you know, stamping our feet and allowing them to roll over us. So how do we overcome that? I feel like those those silos have become such an increasing part of the landscape. And factionalism has just always been a problem for the left. Yeah. <laughs> what does it take to move <laughs> past that? Well, I think, um, you know, I think empathy, humor, I think fiction is therefore uh, the one thing that gives you a radical understanding because you cannot be in a silo if you're a fiction writer. In, For example, in the Ministry of Utmost Happiness, I spent so much time and energy and love lavished on somebody who in real life would be my mortal enemy, which is a very upper caste Indian uh, intelligence officer, but brilliant, you know. So for me, it was like entering... uh, 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 some space close to madness because I know that this person that I'm creating is my equal, but he's my enemy. Yeah. yeah. So for you but as a you writer... Must respect that. Yeah. Mm. So you're able to kind of get inside his head. That's a scary thing. Does that leave you with empathy for your enemy? I don't think it leaves you with empathy, but it leaves you with respect. And I think we should always respect our enemies because when we don't, then we are stupid. You know, we have to know what we're up against. Yeah. And it's so clear reading your book just how much we're up against. Uh, there's, yeah. there's so many problems in this world and you call them out. 
I have to say, it's almost surprising to meet you because there's there's such a twinkle in your eye. <laughs> you, you don't seem beaten down by this whatsoever. Well, I was just uh, actually in correspondence with somebody who, who had just been insulted and libeled and outraged on an Indian TV channel. And he was like, should I sue them? So I was laughing. I said, you know, these are people who honestly... Like a few months ago, the, a Muslim player on the Indian cricket team, you know, did badly in a match and they started to insult him and call him a traitor. And the Indian captain stood up for him. He's not a Muslim. And the trolls started threatening to rape his one-year-old baby. Oh. So now, how can you, uh, you know, you can't let these people get to you because that's what they want. They want to destabilize you and uh, and really they are only they only deserve to be mocked they only deserve your contempt they certainly do not deserve you to lose your balance uh, your peace of mind you, you have to be cool to fight them you know Arundhati Roy thank you so much for joining us today you're welcome Today's episode was produced by Sarah Fenske and Alex Hoyer, with audio engineering and podcast design by Aaron Dorr. Our executive producer is Alex Hoyer. St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. Understanding starts here. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations and leave us a review and rating on apple podcasts on the app store it's the simplest way to help people discover our show thanks st louis public radio is a member supported service of the university of missouri st louis Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.